Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again today. Thank you for joining us again as we continue our series that we've begun teaching on the book of Judges. Probably a very unusual book for most people to preach from or teach from, especially from the perspective of grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ. But this to me is an incredible study that has just continued to grow. Uh, at least in my understanding and different places that I've been sharing it, the uh, response levels have been incredible. And let me just review a little bit and then jump in a little bit further into this book of Judges. We begin sharing with you how that each book of the Bible, the key is probably somewhere near the very beginning, almost like your key is near the door that you have hidden at your home. The book of Joshua opens by saying, Now Moses, my servant, is dead. Arise, Joshua, and take the people in. So the book of Joshua is about the death of Moses and a new leader arising by the name of Joshua. That, to me, powerfully, the whole book of Joshua powerfully pictures what we have come out of, which is Moses, symbolic of the law and the prophets, and coming to another leadership, Joshua, which is the Hebrew name, Yeshua, which is the English word Jesus. So the book of Joshua is about Moses brought you out with a rod, but Jesus is going to bring you in with a mercy seat. And everything about the book of Joshua is a powerful picture of what it takes to enter into the promised land. And one of the things that we shared in the last segment was one of the things they had to do was that that generation that was from 40 years old and younger had never been circumcised. And while I am not taking you back under the law to circumcision, what the New Testament deals with, its equivalent, is the circumcision of the heart. And so I think that we are at a place, even in our journey uh, within the gospel, where we're at in human history right now in the church, is that there's a generation of young people who were not born in the legalism that I was born in, or they were not born under Moses, but there's still something that needs to be worked within them that will change their heart, to circumcise their heart. In other words, law can change your behavior. Grace will change the heart. When you have the heart changed, the behavior automatically comes into alignment with that. So that's the shift that I believe that we're in, is from uh, law into grace or to a new leadership. And so the book of Joshua is about what it takes to move into the promised land and what it takes to live in the realities of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because the promised land is representative to me, according to Hebrews, the fourth chapter, that the rest that we enter into in the new covenant is not a piece of real estate. It's rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's what that book is about. But then we come to the book of Judges, and again, I don't want to take too long to uh, review this, but we come to the book of Judges, and it starts out in verse 1 by saying, now after the death of Joshua. Say it another way, now after the death of Yeshua. Make it clearer. Now after the death of Jesus. It came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So the book of Judges is about, remember now, if the book of Joshua is about what happened after the death of Moses, 
Joshua, Yeshua rose, and then we come to Judges, now after the death of Jesus. So after the death of Jesus in the New Testament, there are twelve apostles who Jesus said would sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But when we come to the book of Judges, now after the death of Joshua, after the death of Jesus, that's the type and shadow here, there were twelve judges. And everything these twelve judges does is a picture of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and they become great tools to communicate the gospel of what the things we need to execute the judgment. Now I shared with you last week from Psalm 149, I'm not going to turn back there again because I'd like to go a little further today, but when we turn to Psalm 149, it said, Sing unto the Lord a new song. The new song is the new song of the new covenant. That new song is found in Revelation the fifth chapter, I believe it is, where they said, And they sang as it were a new song, singing, Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. So the new song is the new song of redemption. So the new, the new song is about what you've been redeemed from as a believer. And then sing unto the Lord a new song. He said, Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Zion again is an icon that speaks of the new covenant. Hebrews 12 said, You did not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, and to Jesus, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. We've come to Zion. So let the children of Zion be joyful. Let them sing aloud on their bed, Psalm 149 says. That's a posture of rest. And he says to, that, that uh, to execute uh, the, the judgment written on all of their kings and nobles, this honor have all his saints. And I shared with you last week that executing the judgment, and I'm going to reiterate this because that's, that scripture will be probably used in almost every segment that I, that I do on the book of Judges. Because executing the judgment written on the nobles and the princes are not, to me, talking about calling down fire from heaven on some city somewhere or some judgment on some group of people that we don't like. But executing the judgment is sometimes there is a judgment. We think about judgment as being a negative connotation, but if you're ever the plaintiff in a case of court and the judge says that the judgment is in favor of the plaintiff, that's good news. That means you won the case. But my attorney said to me some time ago, he says, uh, you know, Lynn, judgment's not always a bad thing. He said, if you are the plaintiff and you win the case and the judge says that the judgment is in favor of the plaintiff, that's a really good thing. So you won the case. But he said, do you know what that means? I said, no, I don't. Uh, and he said, well, that means absolutely nothing if you don't execute the judgment written. In other words, if you don't cash the check of the suit that you just won, you didn't execute the judgment, then you're not walking in the reality of it. I think the gospel is both objective and subjective. I call it the way of grace and the walk of faith. I can't really reiterate this enough because I think it's such an important key because most of our uh, theological arguments that I see break out on Facebook is uh, over uh, an overemphasis of the objective or the subjective side of the gospel. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the objective side of the gospel is what God did in Christ without any help from you. It's His sovereign work of grace. 
By grace are you saved. You didn't do anything to earn that. He reconciled, Romans 5, the death of one man reconciled all men to Jesus by the death of his son. I mean, Romans 5 in the Message Bible says, here it is in a nutshell. One man did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, and another man did it right and got us out of it. So he's reconciled all men to himself. He is the Savior of all men to be testified of in due season, the Scripture says. Now, that means the legal side of it, the grace side of it, the objective side of the gospel is done. God is not going to do something. Again, let me, this is the easiest way I know how to explain the objective and subjective. The Scripture also says, by whose stripes you were healed. That's the objective side of the gospel. He's not going to heal you. He's already healed you. He's already paid the price. That's the, that is the, if you will, the verdict in the case. You have been declared legally right to be able to stand on the healing power of Jesus Christ for your body. But here's the deal. That's the objective side of the gospel. I could preach the objective side of the gospel. By grace we're saved. Uh, uh, you know, we're healed, we're delivered, we've been reconciled to God by the death of His Son. But here's the subjective side, is the walk of faith. The subjective side is me executing the judgment written. In other words, it's walking out the healing that belongs to me. It is not just, if you overemphasize grace without faith, you're going to get a lot of spiritual couch potatoes you're going to get into the extremes, I believe, of universalism. And if you overemphasize faith without grace, you're going to get into works and labor and sweat, and you're going to get into, did you say it right? Did you say it ten times? Did you say it backwards? Did you say it standing on your head? And what that is, is mind over matter. That's not faith. That's faith in faith. But real faith comes by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, to see what He did and believing what He did. And by faith, and faith without grace ends up being a bunch of works and labor. Grace without faith ends up being a couch potato and extremes of nothing happening. But when you bring grace and faith together, the objective and subjective parts of the gospel, grace through faith they become the dynamic duo, and grace and faith give birth to the transformation in our lives. And so preaching the gospel of what is true is the first step, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. In other words, I'm not trying to uh, get more, uh, you know, I'm not trying to uh, uh, get faith in faith. It's like I'm trying to believe harder. I'm trying to believe harder. No, I hear the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God under salvation. But as you go through Romans, and you can go back and watch the playlist I have done on the book of Romans in the Scriptures, because the book of Romans, I start talking about how that the book of Romans is, is both objective and subjective, and we pull out our pet Scriptures and read one chapter, but the, the book of Romans was meant to be read as a letter. It was a letter written to somebody. You don't read one chapter or one paragraph this week of a letter somebody wrote you, and two months from now you read another one, because you mix the contest. You mix sorry, you miss the context. But when you see that Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then you come into Romans and you see the objective side of the gospel, chapter 5, where God did in Christ 
without any help from you. That's the objective side of the gospel. But the response again happens in chapter 6, said, should we continue in sin so grace can abound? God forbid, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer? And so he's talking about what faith does in response to a finished work. That's also what the book of Judges is about. It's about executing by faith what God has provided through grace. So after the death of Joshua, the book of uh, Judges says, this is what happens. Twelve judges execute the judgment, and they execute it on their nobles, as Psalm 149 says, this honor have all of his saints to execute it on their kings. And so to me, when I'm thinking about executing the judgment upon kings and things, I think about principalities and powers. But when I say that, I'm not necessarily talking about demonic spirits. It can be demonic spirits, but principalities and powers are ruling governing thoughts, or they are areas in our uh, in our uh, uh, land, so to speak, that still need to be driven out. Because when they got ready to conquest the land of Canaan, the book of Judges is about the continuing conquest, or the driving out of the inhabitants of the land. I got to tell you that my life, especially in the gospel, since I've seen the finished work, has been an ongoing reality of driving out the inhabitants of the land, and things that I didn't really realize are high things that lift themselves against the knowledge of God. They are principalities and powers. They are ways of thinking. You know, I'm thinking of, of uh, sometimes that sometimes we just have such uh, habitual ways of thinking that lock us in and they become principalities and powers. As uh, you know, I, I've, I've shared this story. I think somebody shared. I heard somebody share about, you know, uh, uh, a, a, a lady who was uh, putting a ham in the oven, and she uh, cut the ham hock off before she could put it in the oven. And somebody asked her, "Well, why do you cut the end of the ham off or the ham hock off when you put that thing in the oven?" And she said, I don't know, my mother always did it. So they later, the mother was still alive, so later they asked and said, asked the mother, it was doing the same thing, well, why do you cut the end of the ham hock off before you put it in the oven? And she said, well, I don't know, my, my grandmother always did it. But come to find out, the reason they did that was because they'd done it for generation after generation, but the reason the first person did it was because the ham wouldn't fit in a pan. But two generations later, they're doing it because, I don't know, that just becomes a ritual. It's just ways we have bought into stuff that I think are like principalities and powers and, and lies that we have believed that need to be pulled down. Ideas about, well, you know, God will heal me if He wants to. You know, those are, those are uh, or, or God's using sickness to perfect me. That's, see, that's all principalities that need to be driven out of our land. Because everything we've been redeemed from in Christ should have no place in our lives. I always think when I was growing up that if you would have gone to our freezer back when we were growing up, you will always find an ice tray. You'll probably laugh about this, but you will always find an ice tray in the freezer with one or two cubes of ice left in it. And the reason that there was always one or two ice cubes left in that ice cube tray was because we knew that the last person to use that ice had to fill the ice tray up. So nobody was about to use that last piece and have to fill it back up rather than just take the easy road, go ahead, fill that ice tray back up, and everybody would have ice. But that became, and when I tell that, my siblings just laugh because that was so true. Thank God now we've got ice makers. We've overcome that. 
But what I'm saying is that there are patterns of belief systems that have been handed down to us that are principalities and powers and kings and nobles, or there are things in our lives. We've lived with hurts. We've lived with PTSD. We've lived with patterns of depression. We've lived with patterns of complaints or uh, abusiveness because they have been handed down. I'm not talking about generational curses. I'm talking about stuff that you have learned as patterns that have been inhabitants of your land that need to be driven out. Poverty mentalities, sickness and disease, ways of looking at things, and begin to drive those things out. And so when it opens in the book of Joshua, it says now after the death of Joshua, he's talking about executing the finished work of what Jesus accomplished in His death, burial, and resurrection. And so, uh, I mean, you're going to, we're going to see all kinds of stuff throughout this book of Judges, especially, like I said, with Gideon, you're going to see him threshing wheat, hiding it under the wine press. Well, that to me speaks of bread and wine, wheat and the wine press. So bread and wine. So that's a finished work. He's talking about hiding it under the wine press. In other words, he had just enough for him and his, and he was hiding, he was a coward, but God wanted to release the miraculous through Gideon, and we'll see that clearer when we get over into the book of, of, of uh, Judges. But when they begin to execute this judgment, we haven't got very far in this series so far, but when he begins to execute this judgment, he said, who will go up to fight against the Canaanites, to fight against them for us? And he said, and the Lord said, Judah will go up indeed, because I've delivered the land into his hand. And so he begins to work with his brother Simeon, and uh, he begins to take the land. Uh, they begin to go up and take the land. So the first thing that I want you to see is that Judah goes first. That speaks to me of praise. What do we see in Psalm 149 when we're talking about executing the judgment written? He said, sing unto the Lord a new song. Let the high praises of God be in your mouth. I can't emphasize this enough, and this is something that sometimes I don't know why it's so hard to grasp, even for me, because sometimes I find myself complaining instead of praising. But when I think about how even Jesus, you know, opens the Lord's prayer when He's teaching us to pray, He said, Our Father which is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. He starts out with the praise. I believe if we would start out our day, we're talking about He woke me up this morning, you know, and I, I, I woke up on the right side of the ground. That's something to praise God about. The sun is shining. God is this is another opportunity for, to see the miraculous of God in our lives. And we could kind of accentuate the positive. And I really think sometimes as we have been so blessed, especially in America, you know, when I travel abroad and I see some of the stuff that people suffer and go through, it almost makes me want to come back and, and, and be angry at Americans at, at how nonchalantly and how unappreciative we are of just the little things that we have because a bad day in this country is a good day other places. But when I think about being thankful and praising God for what He has done, that begins to execute a judgment on some things that have been in my land that need to be dispossessed. It's an ongoing conquest or overcoming the areas of our life that are uh, still ruling and governing inside of us. So they, they begin to go up to uh, take the land and, to, and to, uh, to begin to drive out the inhabitants. And I told you before that, you know, there was like some 
some things that we need to dispossess. We need to dispossess discouragement because we've got courage. We need to dis disease because disease is the lack of ease. And, and, and I shared that in the last one, but you know, they went up into the land and uh, uh, the very first one was Othniel. Uh, begin to take some of the land back. I'll get into Othniel a little bit later, but I want you to go back and see that what the Lord begins to do with in them, especially in, it talks about the Judah and uh, I believe it was Simeon and uh, a few of the tribes, they begin to take some land. So the praise begin to take some lands back. They, they had utterly destroyed some of the places and they begin to uh, uh, they took the, uh, for instance, Caleb gave the upper springs to his daughter uh, who married Caleb and uh, 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 Othniel, the son of Kenneth, Caleb's younger brother, took it. He gave him his daughter to Achish to wife. They took several of these cities and they were, they were possessing the land. So some of them were in conquest. Some of them were moving forward. And again, when I talk about that, I'm thinking about uh, the conquest of areas in our life that come because Judah went against them and our praise becomes our weapon. The, the high praises of God and the two-edged sword in our mouth is a weapon. To me, these are powerful concepts. They are powerful concepts because they are stuff we can uh, execute against them with. And so, but you're going down to, like I said, I don't want to get uh, into the first part of this. I want to go down here and show you something here in verse number 27. This is Judges chapter number 1. It says, however... Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, so the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of the Sidon or of Ahablip or Achib or Heba or Aphek or Rehob. The Ash, so the Ashterites dwelt among the Canaanites, so the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelled among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in the Mount Herez, in Ajalon, and in Shalabim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabimim, from Selah and upward. And it goes on to say, And the angel of the Lord came from up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you up out of from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but you sh they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bacham. 
and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people of the children of Israel, went to each to his house, his own inheritance, to possess the land. And then it goes on to say that, so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done in Israel, or for Israel. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the borders of his inheritance at timnath in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaius. When all that generation had gathered to their fathers, another generation of the, arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served their Baals. And I, I began to see that what God was saying to them is that Judah and Simeon and some of those guys began to drive out the inhabitants of the land. But it lists all of these tribes who did not drive them out. And man, as I was thinking about this before we came on camera today, I heard the Lord say to me, what are you willing to live with? Are you willing to let some of these enemies live in your land? Because what happens is he said, you know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to remove my covenant. I, I refuse to break my covenant. But what you don't drive out is going to be a thorn to you. It's going to be an irritation and an aggravation. Probably the things that are going on in our lives today are a result of us not fulfilling the conquest of the land and driving out through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that really caught my attention is there was a generation that arose who did not know the Lord nor the work which he'd done in Israel. I said to a pastor recently, I said, I'm really worried that there's a generation among us that have never seen the power of Pentecost like we saw growing up. And some of them wouldn't know what to do with the move of the Spirit if it hit them in the face. And we have so, I think, relegated our services to time limits that we don't make time for the Holy Spirit to move. And so what has happened is that there are a generation who have never seen the power of the Lord demonstrated in the miraculous. And so they have been willing to let in, I think, a lot of New Age concepts. A lot of liberal thinking has creeped into the church. A lot of stuff that's dismantled the faith of many has slipped into the church because there's a generation among us that do not know the Lord, nor the work which He has done. But I believe God is stirring among His people, and He's raising up judges in this hour who are going to begin to execute the judgment written, and they're going to begin to see. I'm not talking about calling down fire from heaven. I'm talking about walking in the place. Because what after a while, when you get provoked enough by these enemies that are in the land that drive you into the mountains and drive you into hiding, make you hide your wheat and wine under the wine press, make you feel like a coward or like Shamgar where the highways are unoccupied, or you're being oppressed by the enemy. At some point, somebody's going to rise and say, it's time for us to take the conquest and execute the judgment written. That's what this book of Judges is about. Well, we're about out of time again today, and I want you to, if you'd like to sow a seed into this ministry and you'd like to help us to be able to stay on the air and reach the nations that we're reaching, please go to our website right there. It's a place where you can give via credit card or debit card through our PayPal portal. Uh, you can set up a monthly debit if you'd like to become a monthly partner with us, or you can send a check or money order to the number that uh, to the address that'll come on the screen. You can also call the number on the screen. Someone will take your call, take your credit card, or whatever you'd like to do to give in that manner over the phone. If you do not get an answer, please leave a message. We have a limited staff in this area, sometimes late at night. 
they will call you back. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.